Let me, let me tell you something. Um, you, you, need to, you need to know this. The, the greatest determining factor of what transforms your life today is not what I say, but what you're willing to receive. Have to, have to wrap our minds around this. The greatest determining factor of what changes your life today has nothing to do with what I say and everything to do with what your heart is willing to receive this morning. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to posture your heart to a place to receive because Romans, the book of Romans, it's not me, it's Romans. It wrecks you. Romans wrecks you. Say that with me. Romans wrecks you. One more time. Romans wrecks you in every way, shape, or form. Don't take it just from me. I'm going to read you what some of our church fathers have had to say about the book of Romans. If you don't know who any of these people are, um, let me equate it to you like this. St. Augustine, John Stott, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, that is like um, perfect. That is like Michael Irvin, Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith are to the Dallas Cowboys, right? Like these are the pinnacles of our faith. These are the pillars of our faith. These are the early philosophers of our faith. These are the people that won us championships, right? A lot of people forgot that was over 25 years ago, but it's the people that won us championships, right? These are the people that set us up. So when you hear these words, let them carry the weight of people who have changed the world. Augustine, St. Augustine, he was a fourth century bishop, Christian philosopher, one of the deepest, most well-sought Christian philosophers of his day. He had a Christian mom, and he, he, his mom was a follower of, of Christ, and he totally bailed on his mother's faith. He was wild, he was addicted, he was lusting like crazy, he had a child out of wedlock, which in this day and age was a far more grievous sin than it is today. He, he was just, he was seen as they saw him, like, oh no, there is that crazy wild man who's coming around. And so he goes and he hears this sermon from the Bishop of Ambrose, and after he hears this sermon, here's what he said. The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains. If you are in here today and you feel like addictions have shackled you, you feel like lust has shackled you, you feel like lies of the world have shackled you, this is Augustine, he's saying, my I was twisting and turning in my chains. Suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl. Pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read. I opened to the book of Romans, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eyes lit, not in riots or drunken parties, not in eroticism or indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh in its lust. That's Romans 13, 13 to 14. Augustine says, I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a relief from all anxiety flooded my heart. All the shadows of doubt dispelled. So when you hear really smart people quote St. Augustine, he was transformed by the book of Romans. The book of Romans literally broke the shackles off of his addictions. John Stott, who is an English pastor and theologian, he wrote, I have a love-hate relationship with Romans because of its joyful, painful, personal challenges. 
It was Paul's devastating exposure of the universal human sin and guilt in Romans 1 through 3, which rescued me from that kind of superficial evangelism, which is preoccupied only with people's felt needs. John Stott said, the book of Romans took me way deeper. The book of Romans took me way deeper in my calling. Listen to Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German monk who hated God. He literally hated God and murmured threats against God because of God's righteousness. He was someone who believed that there was no way he could love a God who was so righteous that wouldn't let sinners into his presence. That was his belief. So he became a German monk, and here's what he wrote. I hated God because of righteousness. Which, by the way, this is what we're talking about today. Couldn't attain it, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. I broke through. And as if I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard as my dearest and most comforting word. He goes on to say, verse, Romans 1, verse 17 changed his life. We're talking about that today. Luther was the man who broke through Christianity into Germany, translated the Bible into German, started a massive European Reformation. He is the father of the Reformation that reformed our faith. Out of that Reformation came John Calvin. John Calvin says, Romans is entrance to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. The subject then of these chapters may be stated thus. Man's only righteousness is through the mercy of God in Christ, which being offered by the gospel is apprehended by faith. John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism and the grandfather of Pentecostalism, is said to have gotten saved by hearing Martin Luther's Romans commentary read aloud. Here's some more quotes. Tony Evans says, Romans is the constitution of the church. Martin Luther says, Romans is the true masterpiece of the New Testament. William Tyndall said, Romans is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. R.C. Sproul says, no book has had such an impact on my life as the book of Romans. Romans wrecks you. Rome, there is, think of, there is no coincidence that some of the greatest founders and fathers of our faith have turned to the book of Romans and said, that book transformed my life. That book is the masterpiece of the New Testament. That book is the book that changed everything for me. But there, there's something about, we cannot just read it, we have to experience it. My dad uh, was a fan of NASCAR. Any, are you, are you bold enough to admit your, well, they are because we all know what NASCAR fans are like. Where's my NASCAR fans in the house? <laughs> I'm waiting for you. That was my dad. My dad, ponytail the middle of his back, beard to the middle of his chest, just an absolute. I, I always said NASCAR stood for non-athletic sport centered around rednecks. 
That's what, that's what NASCAR is, right? And my dad was crazy about NASCAR. So uh, my mom, who worked for Sprint, she worked for the CEO of Sprint, he wound up getting tickets to the Sprint Cup that was in Kansas City. And ironically enough, CEO of Sprint didn't want to go. So she had these tickets and, and had them to give away. And I said, you know what? He'll love it. I'll take my dad and one of his friends. So I get the tickets and I take my dad and my dad is like, we're going to NASCAR, I cannot wait. This is a guy who had DirecTV piped into his trailer so he could have the speed channel. So he could watch NASCAR every single race. So we get there, we get to NASCAR. First thing happening is 38 Special is playing a show right in the middle of the field before everything begins. My, my dad, when I tell you my dad was crazy, my dad and his friend ran right out into the center of thousands of people for 38 Special. 30 minutes later, he was sweating, wearing a different T-shirt, came out and was like, this is great, son. This is incredible, like I love this, right? My dad was crazy. So we had pit passes and he was like, son, we're going to the pits, come on, let's go to the pits. And, and I'm like, we're in the pits, dad. Like, this is, this is a NASCAR event, right? So we go down to the pits and he is so hyped up, right? He's just, Earnhardt there and all this stuff and he's just, he's crazy about it. And then all of a sudden he was like, come on, they're about to start, let's go up to the fence. We're standing at the fence, I am from me to destiny from the cars. They're, they're right there. And all of a sudden the guy gets on the, the mic and he says, gentlemen, start your engines. And I mean the ground rumbled. The entire earth shook, right? Like this, I could just feel it under me. I was like, wow. So then they fire these things up and the guys go out and they're doing this provisional lap, right? And as they're going around, they're saying, okay, and they're getting ready to wave the green flag. And when they wave the green flag, these cars swell just Boom. And I mean, I'm standing there at the corner. My dad's head spinning in circles like, yeah, you know. And these cars are just shoom, shoom, just rushing. But I can feel the wind blowing my hair back. The sound and the power is literally vibrating the hairs on my arm. It is like shaking every fiber of my being. And for a moment, for one moment, I was like, pretty cool. <laughs> this is pretty cool, right? By the end of it, I was like, yeah, I got a different t-shirt on when we left. I just, no. but, I mean, I was just, it was such a wild thing because I've watched it a thousand times and I hated watching it. My dad always had racing on the TV, but the moment I experienced it, it changed my perspective on it. You have to experience the book of Romans. You cannot just read this book. You cannot listen to it read aloud from me. You can't get it on Audible and listen to it on your drive. When you experience this book, it changes you. It changed St. Augustine. It changed Martin Luther. It changed John Calvin, and it is begging to change you. So will you receive the book of Romans today? We're getting closer. Some of you didn't like that NASCAR joke. All right, two things of context. Paul and the context of the book. Let me just rifle through these. They're in your sermon notes on the app as well. <clears throat> but you need to know them. 
Paul was born to Jewish parents who were Roman citizens. That's really important to understand. So Paul was born a Jew with Roman citizenship. The two warring races and tribes of the day were Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and Greeks. Paul has both. He is in the center of both. I have a friend who has a black dad and a white mom, and he said, I am in the center of the unity battle because I go out with my mom and I'm treated one way, I go out with my dad and I'm treated another way. That is Paul in the context of this book. Paul is a born Jew with Roman citizenship. Very important to understand. He's the perfect person to step into a Jew-Gentile divided church. Paul studied under Gamaliel. He was on the fast track to becoming an elite Pharisee leader. He was persecuting the church and killing Christians. Paul was literally known for knocking on the doors of Christians and when they would answer, dragging them out of their house, arresting them, and later seeing to their execution. This is a man who was a religious terrorist. He was a killer of Christians. And he goes from a killer of Christians to preaching Jesus. He gets radically saved, Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus. And once he is saved, God calls him to the Gentiles. So he goes to the Gentiles, a Jew born with Roman citizenship, and he is preaching a message of unity. Have to understand that. When you get the context of Romans, here here is the book of Romans. We know the author, that's Paul. Here's the context of the book. The church in Rome was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Most of the Roman churches were started by Hellenistic Jews. Claudius Caesar in AD 49 kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. He expelled them out of Rome, seeing them as a religious threat. They were beginning to really worship Jesus, and he saw his power dwindling and Jesus coming on the uprise. So he expels all the Jews in AD 49 out of Rome. They come back five years later. Imagine this. As the Jews leave, all of the Gentiles take over leadership of the Jewish churches. They start doing things differently. They start living differently. They start acting differently within the churches. Five years later, all of the Jews come back into Rome. When they come back into Rome, they are confronted by a church that no longer holds their liturgy, that no longer holds their history, that no longer speaks their language, and this huge divide comes up in the church. It is the Jewish expression of worship and the Greek expression of worship Ironically, the same God at total collision course. Imagine the tension. I I think you probably can. Remember the last election? My goodness. I was getting emails from both sides all the time. I I literally would get an email. Thank you so much for having people in masks. It was the university's policy. Then I would get another email from somebody that says, you are muzzling the worship of God with masks. What's wrong with you? Like the divide. It's like we're, we're the same body, but so divided. So Paul is confronting right now with the book of Romans. He is right in the center of a Jew versus Gentile divide. The Jews divided the world into two. There were Jews and the rest. They called the rest nations. The Gentiles, or the Greeks, divided the world into two. There were Greeks, and then there were barbarians. They referred to, I mean, you know the Greeks, right? Super pretentious, very high and mighty. I am the, uh, I'm from the woodlands, right? <laughs> like, that, was, that was the Greeks. And they considered everyone else the barbarians, right? That's literally how they communicated, okay? So here is why Paul is writing the book of Romans. And here is why this is so important for you to understand. Paul is writing Romans to unify the church and reestablish the gospel. 
He's writing Romans to unify the church and reestablish the gospel. Here's where we're going to break this up. Romans 1 through 4 is the establishment of the gospel. Romans 5 through 8, Paul explains the gospel. Romans 9 through 11, we get examples of the gospel. And Romans 12 through 16 is living out the gospel. 12 weeks, four sections. Are you ready? (laughs) We'll see. Let's find out right now. Let's jump in. Let's jump in. Romans 1. Guys, I'm going to skip 1 through 10. Uh, Romans 1 through 10, jump down to 16 through 17. Romans 1 through 10 is introductions. Paul is basically saying, I am Paul, you are not. I have authority, and I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is for Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, and everyone in between. And here is my message. Now, let's jump down to Romans 1, 16 through 17. This is Paul's thesis for the entire book of Romans. This is everything from the book of Romans flows out of these two verses. If you catch anything from the book of Romans, catch these. Paul says, oh, this is good. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Amen. Thank you. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Verse 17, for in the gospel, remember Martin Luther, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul is confronting divide, he's bringing unity, and he's reestablishing or establishing for the first time the gospel. And what is the first thing that he says? I am unashamed. And then he goes into using these words. Now, let me, let me tell you, these words, we have Christianized these words into believing that they're Christian language. Mind you, New Testament's written in primarily Greek, Greeks were the people that Paul is speaking to right now. It was their language, right? Gospel eulogion, or uh, it's, it's euangelion is the, is the Greek word. It's not a Christian word. It's not Christian language. It's Greek language. It originated with Caesar. They would say the good news of Caesar. We want to hear the good news of Caesar. Paul is coming saying, I've got a better gospel. The word for God, theos, was originally attributed to Caesar, Caesar declared himself divine as a mini theos. Paul is saying, I have the true theos, the true God. Soterios, salvation, was a Greek word. That wasn't a gospel word. That wasn't a Christian word. That was a Greek word, soterios. And it was originally attributed to Caesar's armies who saved them from warring nations. So here is what Paul is doing. Are you ready for me to push your buttons? Paul is taking the language of the day and he is saying your language holds no power if it doesn't point you to the gospel. Oh, I'm, I'm still going here. What he's saying is, make America great again will not save you. What he's saying is, build back better will not save you. Should I keep going? What he's saying is, Black Lives Matter won't save you. He's saying the language of the culture, if it does not carry the power of the gospel, 
will not save you. It will not save you. Only Jesus will save you. And if that pushes your buttons, oh, if it makes you mad, if you're boiling, if you want to leave but your wife won't let you, if you're upset right now, that's exactly how you should be. Because you've been trusting in language that does not save. Paul is saying the gospel that you follow is not the gospel that will save you. The mantras that you pick up and declare will not save you. I'm already seeing it. Go vote, go vote, go. We got Christians more concerned with people voting than coming to church on Sunday. I experience more people inviting other Christians to the polls than I experience them inviting them here to church as if it's more important. It's exactly what Paul is confronting. It's exactly the problem within the church. He's saying you have bought into the language of the day as your narrative, and that language doesn't save. You want a gospel, I'll give you the gospel. You want a savior, I'll give you a savior. You want a God, I'll give you a God. But it's not in a politician, it's not in a philosopher, it's not in an army leader, it is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what Paul is saying. And so now, now think about how these words carry weight. So what does Paul say? For I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed to say that the ideology of your day is leading you astray. I'm not ashamed to say that the things you are placing your entire life ethos on will not save your soul. I'm not ashamed to confront you. He says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed. Here's why that's important. Well, for, let me tell you a story first. The other day, um, I'm riding in my truck with my daughter Zion. My daughter Zion, she loves to bump loud music. She just, for her, it's, it's a sensory input. She starts rocking and she starts moving and she loves it, right? And she loves kids bop. <laughs> Who's familiar with Kids Bop? We familiar with Kids Bop? Okay, you guys got a little demo of Kids Bop? All yeah. of my heart is in Havana. There's something about his manners. Uh -huh. Havana, Havana. Yeah! When he came in the right? So my daughter, we're riding and we're bumping to Kids Bop. And then all of a sudden, I come up to the stop in my neighborhood and there's like five or six teenagers sitting there at the corner and we got the windows down, we got Kids Bop bumping and as I'm pulling up, I see them starting to look at me. And look, I'm losing cool points by the day, right? Like, I just am, I'm getting old, my hair's falling out, I can't eat Oreos anymore. Like, I'm just, I'm like, I gotta preserve a little bit of this, right? So as we pull up to the four-way stop, I'm like, turn it down a little bit, turn it down a little more. We get there, turn it all the way down, and then we pass through the four-way, and it's back up to rolling, right? But there was a shame in me, because I didn't want them to see that and judge me, or talk about the old man listening to Kid Bop thinking he's cool, or what, whatever that may be, right? It's that, it's that shame. This is what Paul is confronting in Roman culture. This is what Paul is dialing in on with Roman culture. Caesar had just expelled all of the Jews for five years. They came back and there was this pseudo shame attached to religiosity. In other words, you got kicked out of here for being spiritual. 
we'll let you back in, but just as long as it doesn't get out of hand, right? This is when you're talking about your faith in public, you're sitting at Starbucks with your friend, and people come around and you get real quiet all of a sudden. You start talking about Jesus like this because you're worried someone else may, may hear you. It's this pseudo shame that you live in under religion, under religiosity. Religion is not bad, religion's neutral. Christianity was the religion of Jesus. Okay? But it's, it's this shame that we live in when someone is talking bad about people who go to Chi Alpha or to Truth and you attend with them but you're scared to say something back to them because you're ashamed of your association or this is like you going to work tomorrow and your coworkers asking you what you did today and you tell them everything but worship Jesus. And it's this pseudo underlining shame of on Sunday morning, I'll give him my best, but on Monday, I'll just act like nothing happened. And Paul is confronting it head on. And he's saying, I am not ashamed. Why is Paul not ashamed? Here it is. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation. Why are we not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God. Now remember, Rome was the seat of power in Greco-Roman culture. Rome was the most powerful thing going. Caesar literally means little God. And yet Paul is declaring right in the face of this culture, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. Now catch this. He doesn't say it brings power. And he doesn't say it has power. He says it is power. The gospel is the actual power of God in verbal cognitive form. The gospel is the power. When you recognize that it's the power, you're no longer ashamed of it. It is the power of God when it is heard and it enters into the hearts of man. When you experience the gospel, it transforms you. You go from a hard-hearted jerk to a soft-hearted worshiper. You go from a lying thief to an honest follower. You, the gospel changed you. It did to Paul. It transformed Paul. And now Paul is declaring, I'm not ashamed of this because it's the power of God. Because it holds all the power, because it changes us. Theodoret, a fifth century Syrian bishop, he compared the gospel to a pepper. Oh, this was ironic. He said, a pepper outwardly seems to be cold, but the person who, ch who crunches it between the teeth experiences the sensation of burning fire. Canaan the other day, this is really funny. How about a rabbit trail? Um, he ran out of toothpaste. And so he's like, Dad, I'm, I'm out of toothpaste. I can't brush my teeth. I said, go downstairs to my sink. And behind my sink, uh, I've got my toothpaste. Get it. He gets it, comes up. I put some on his toothbrush. And he goes to brush his teeth. Now, now, I had no idea. His mother has only ever bought him this watermelon, bubble gum, no GMO, baking soda based, little bit of charcoal toothpaste, right? Like, he's never had the real stuff. And so he puts it on there, and he's, he goes to brush his teeth. And the second that toothbrush, he gives it like two or three seconds, and then literally starts foaming at the mouth. <laughs> he starts spitting everywhere. Just <laughs> He's a dad, dad, it's so spicy. What have you given me? And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's toothpaste. He's like, no, it's blah. 
literally five minutes. He's got his head under the sink, running water in his mouth, acts like he's dying. It's toothpaste until it touches your lips and then it sets you on fire, right? That's what Paul is saying about the gospel. The gospel changes people. And when you experience the change of the gospel, when it sinks down into your heart, the gospel is not a social construct. The gospel is not something to be studied. The gospel is not a religious philosophy. The gospel is the power of God to change you, to enter in right here by the Holy Spirit and change you. I don't want to pastor a church of people that want to study the gospel. I want to pastor a church of people who want to experience the gospel, who say, give me the power. The gospel is the power to save you, to save your marriage, to save your family, to save your kids. It is the power of God. And what does he say about it? It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes Jew first, and then to the Gentile. That could easily be translated through the Jew first. Jesus was a Jew, and it came through the Jewish line of David, and then it's made available to everyone through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, remember this. Rome tried to save themselves by power, by prominence, by Caesar, by money, by expanding territory, by killing their enemies, and none of those things saved them. None of those things save them. And so Paul is confronting them with the one thing that can bring satirios. When they would run around saying, Caesar will save, Caesar's armies will save, Paul is saying nothing has the power to save outside of Jesus Christ. In other words, quit buying into empty promises on religious products that do not satisfy. Quit buying into lies. I, <laughs> this is funny. It's embarrassing too. How many of you remember those uh, electronic ab belts? Yeah, yeah. Anybody? Nobody? Okay. I mean, like, look. So they, I was, I was, I was, I was like 16 years old. Wanted abs, like every 16 year old, right? And didn't want to do the work to get them. So I was watching TV, and this commercial popped up of these electronic ab belts that you put on your belly and you, you literally shock yourself and then all of the pictures have these guys with just ripped and chiseled abs, right? And it's like, if you want this, buy this. So I got my mom's credit card and, and for four easy payments of $29.99, I got an ab belt. And like, I remember when it arrived, this gel came with it and you put this gel on first and then you put the belt on and two AA batteries in it and you start turning up the intensity and it's like the, the higher the intensity, the more painful and miserable it is and there are no abs that show up. <laughs> Literally, who else? Who else? Come on. Don't let me be alone here. Who's bought an ab belt? Thank you so, oh, not me. <laughs> Who else? Just quit. Just give me, give me a little nod, something. Don't let me feel, right? Where are our abs? Where did they go? And so what's funny is in 2002, the FTC sued the top three ab belt companies. Sued them for making these two promises. Number one, lose four inches in 30 days guaranteed. The other one was 10 minutes of the ab belt equals 600 sit-ups. No chance. Here's what the chairman of the FTC said about this. He said, for years, marketers of diet and exercise products have been preying on overweight, out-of-shape consumers. I bought one of these. It's pretty rude, right? <laughs> By hawking false hope in a pill 
false hope in a bottle and now in a belt, said FTC Chairman Timothy Miris. He goes on to say, unfortunately, there are no magic pills, potions, or pulsators for losing weight and getting into shape. The only winning combination is changing your diet and exercise. I have news for you. There is no magic potion for salvation. There is no worldly philosophy that's going to save you. There is no political mantra that's going to save you. There is nothing that is going to promise you salvation and deliver at Jesus Christ can. Jesus is the power of God to save. It is what Paul is talking about. It is the power of God to save. Are you wrecked yet? How does that change your thinking? If you think for a minute, everything that you watch on Fox News and CNN and see on social media and all of these things don't have the power to save, yet you give so much time and energy and thought and focus to them. How does that wreck you? How does that change you? How does that cause you to think about what am I? It's literally where Paul was at with the Romans. He's like, you guys are so bought into things that do nothing for you. That's why I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God to save everybody. It changes you. All right, we're halfway through the first message. I told you it's intense, right? This is the most important part. We have to catch this. This is Romans 1.17, Luther attributed to his transformation. This is what's going to set you free today, okay? Paul says, for the gospel for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He elaborates on this righteousness in Romans 3, 21 through 24. I don't want to get too far ahead because we're going to preach this. But here's what he elaborates. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. God's righteousness has been made known. Here's how. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The righteousness is equal you want equality? Here it is. It's the righteousness of God. Nothing, no law, no, no institution, nothing is going to give equality like the righteousness of God. Listen to what he says. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, Paul says, for the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Righteousness means right standing. Here's where we make a mistake. We think the gospel is purely about forgiveness of sins. That's literally, what is the gospel? It is the forgiveness of my sins. It is the death of Jesus Christ, and he died with my sins on the cross, so, and he rose so that I could rise to new life. That's what we believe, and so I am forgiven. That's one part the other part is the righteousness of God. And we often leave this out, but Paul is saying it's the power to save and it's the righteousness of God revealed. That Greek word for real, that's apocalypto. Apoko means to remove and calypto means what has been concealed. So he's saying he is now removing the thing that is hiding the righteousness that you seek. In other words, what you could not attain, you can now attain in Christ. So let me, let me give you this example. Righteousness is right standing with God. Picture um, getting out of prison, okay? So let's say 
Jesus gets you out of prison. He did that, Acts chapter four. Uh, he gets you out of prison, all right? And, and once he gets you out, you're free. That's forgiveness, okay? He got me out of what had entrapped me or what was holding me and he got me out of it and set me free. Righteousness is him now taking you after he's gotten you out of prison, putting a medal around your neck, putting his arm on your shoulder and declaring to everybody that this is my child. This person is right with me. This person is good by me. This person can be in my presence. Do you see how this transformed Martin Luther? Because for the first time, God's righteousness was not against you, but it was given to you. You are right with God today, not by action, but by faith. Not by anything that you can do, but by what Jesus has done for you. That's what Paul is saying. The righteousness of God is revealed. You may feel ashamed to be before the Lord. You may feel too sinful to be before the Lord. You may feel not good enough to be before the Lord. You may feel like your past is going to hold you back from all that God wants you. Maybe I could be a Bible study leader, but I probably couldn't be a pastor because of the sin that I committed 15 years ago. God's probably not gonna put this grace on me. No, no, no. The righteousness of God revealed is him reaching out, taking his arm around you and saying, this person is right with me. And it's by faith, not by action. What does Paul say? He says, it is faith from the first to the last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Hear me. We do not become righteous with God through faith and then maintain it with good works. Do you hear me? We do not become righteous with God through faith and then maintain it by good works. It is what Paul said, faith from first to last, from the very beginning to the very ending, it is faith. Faith is what keeps you right with God. We're in this place right now in my home where we are... Um, we are rewarding, we are honoring, we are celebrating, uh, how should I say it, effort, intention, not actions. Uh, I'll give you an example. My son the other day, he uh, decided he wanted to do something nice for mommy and daddy. So he went up to his room and he cleaned his own room. And he comes down, here, all right, yeah, Tina, you know him. But he comes downstairs and he's like, hey, I, I cleaned my own room, mom and dad, I wanna show you my room. We go up there and it's literally destroyed. It is, he has taken every single piece of his clothing out of his drawers. He's put them on the floor because he says it's easier for him to access. He's taken everything out of his closet, literally everything out of his closet. He has filled all his drawers with toys and he's taken half the electronics out of my office and built his own gamer studio. <laughs> right? He's like, Mom and Dad, look, look, I cleaned my room. Isn't it cool? And we're like, yeah, thanks, bud. Great job, pal. It's like we don't want to crush him, right? So a couple days ago, he comes around to me and he says, hey, Dad, guess what? I said, what, buddy? He said, I organized your office for you. I was like, oh, God, no. Lord, tell me he didn't do that. I go up to my office. I kid you not. He took every single one of my books off my bookshelf. He took the book covers off of the books. He put his toys on the bookshelf, so now it's really cool because we can share it, right? 
He's like, Dad, now we can share the bookshelf. It's so cool. He took um, all of my file folders out of a file cabinet and made a Nerf gun drawer. <laughs> Papers and files everywhere, right? Literally wrecked my, and he's sitting there and he's smiling ear to ear and he's like, Dad, what do you think? And I'm like, ugh. Great job, buddy. Nice work, pal. You know, inside I'm burning, but what do I know? I know what his heart was trying to do. I know what his faith was trying to do. He was trying to bless his parents. He was trying to honor his parents. Look, if I judged him on his actions, I would crush his spirit daily. But if I look to his heart, if I look to his faith and I see what he's doing, then I find a way to honor and channel what is in here. Eventually, his actions will come about. That's what Paul is saying about righteousness. God cannot give you righteousness according to what you do or what you deserve. You'll never get it. But it's your faith. And when you have the right faith and you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you may screw it up from time to time and you may not always get it right, but God's righteousness is for you. And it is placed on you, not by your actions, but by Jesus' actions on the cross. Do you feel the tension of Romans? A group of people that have bought the wrong philosophical narrative, that are divided down the center as one church completely divided, and Paul comes in gun loaded. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power to save, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The, this, the gospel is, is, is God's righteousness revealed. 